when we flew the photo recon mission, and I saw with my own eyes, I saw a wasteland of nothing. It was just emptiness. Nothing moved, nothing stood. It was, I said, a wasteland of nothing. Imagine that you're 18. You're seated in the glass-enclosed nose of a B-29 flying low over Japan. You needn't fear anti-aircraft fire because World War II has ended. The Japanese have surrendered. What you're witnessing is how it ended. Howard Kane, now in his mid-90s, was that 18-year-old. What he saw over Hiroshima and Nagasaki that day long ago is an image he has carried his entire life. His is the story of a son of immigrant parents who was so eager to serve he lied about his age. And that did not make mother at all happy. So you're the son of Jewish immigrants who came from Russia, and you called them Ma and Pa, right? They were not dad and mother. They were Ma and Pa. They came to the States, I would say, in the early 1900s. They were teenagers at the time. I am not certain to this day that ultimately the marriage was not an arranged marriage, which was quite common in the Jewish uh, faith at that time to get people married off, I guess. But you lived with your folks and your older brother. For the first seven years of my life, I lived in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. My dad, my mother, Ma, Pa, my older brother, Norman, and myself. At seven, maybe eight, my folks moved to the south side of Chicago. Englewood. Englewood, 61st and Normal, where my dad opened up on Halsted Street a small mattress factory. Make them in the back, sell them in the front. And <laughs> <laughs> your brother... Enlisted, I gather, right? He went, he went into the service first. As the war came on, he, uh, he was drafted. And ultimately, there was a five-year uh, age difference between us. He went first. He ultimately ended up in Europe. We were not certain where the war, World War II pr- uh, proceeded. I'm in high school. I went, did my number when I was a senior. Yeah, your number was you ditched school for a day. And you decided, although I know you knew your parents would be upset with this, to go ahead and enlist. I wanted to fly. I was uh, enamored with all the Hollywood uh, movies about the Air Force. It was then the Army Air Corps. I just thought it was so glamorous, the silver wings, and the pilots always got the pretty girls. So that's what I wanted to do. And there was a caveat. When you were 17, you could enlist with your parents' approval, with their signatures. When at 18, it was the draft board and probably the infantry. So one day, without telling my parents, I ditched school, took the streetcar, the old streetcar downtown, the Army Air Corps recruiting station, which was in the old post office on Jackson Boulevard, got the enlistment papers, brought them home, Forged my parents' signatures, father with my right hand, mother with my left hand. Found my birth certificate, went down a couple of days later, 
took the physical, took the written exam. I took the oath, and at 17, I am now a member of the Army Air Corps. Did you doctor the birth certificate? No, uh, the birth certificate showed I was 17, and they would accept that as long as I had uh, on the application form my mother and father's signatures, which I had forged. Okay, so you took the oath, and you're in, and you take the streetcar back home. Back home, and at dinner that night, Ma, Pa, I have something to tell you. I am now, I enlisted, we, we spoke half Yiddish, half English. And I am now a member of the Army Air Corps. My mother started screaming at me in Yiddish, which means you're going to get killed. And with that, she picked up a broom and started to beat, beat on me with the broom handle on my right arm. And, you know, I didn't have to worry about getting killed and Overseas, she damn near did the job herself. I still can't raise my right arm. <laughs> she did a wailing on you then, <laughs> right? Did, did she ever? What'd your dad say? Oh, they, uh, you know, they came to accept it. You know, being in service at, at that point, it was 1944. It was the patriotic thing to do. Everybody did it. You know, every families, uh, the kids all went and. Uh, yeah, and shortly after I enlisted, I got orders to report to Keesler Field, Mississippi. You're absolutely not the first person to have forged a parental no, signature. No, I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there was something else at work here, apart from your desire to, to fly. You had a, a bit of patriotic fervor here. The whole country did. Yes, I, uh, I've always been a patriot, patriotic guy. I think, I think everybody in the family will... S- still say to this day I have a patriotic bent. I, I just feel it was the right thing to do. Uh, I suppose being Jewish and knowing about the Holocaust, I wanted to. But but beyond that, as an American, I just I felt it was my duty. Now, I, I always understood if somebody phys- had physical uh, limitations, they shouldn't go. But uh, during World War II, I... I, I never understood why everybody who could go didn't go. It was just the way I'm built. And your parents, despite their anger at the time, I suppose eventually came around to, oh. to understand why you did this. Uh, every family who had a member in service had a flag in the window with stars on it. If they had one child, one blue star, in my case with my mother and father, it would be two blue stars. If you had a fatality, it was a gold star. And I, and I know that my mother and my dad, in their own quiet way, when they hung up that flag with the two stars, they were proud. They were proud of my brother and I, no question about it. During the war, you know, the. With the, with the rationing, uh, I think it was one pair of shoes a year per person. I think we had an A sticker for the car. I, as I remember when I was home, it was two gallons of gas a week. Uh, red, red stickers for so much meat. Tough times, but we survived. You're off to uh, Keesler Air Force Base. Keesler Field, basic training, and then they had so many. <laughs> the war, the war in, in uh, Europe had just about ended. 
They had, had so many pilots, they sent us on to aircraft engine mechanic school, then on to uh, flight engineer school and training, and ultimately B-29 training. And I ended up uh, on a troop ship 21 days to Okinawa, where I joined the 460th Bomb Squadron, the 333rd Bomb Group. Is this what you wanted to do for the Army Air Corps? You wanted to be flight engineer? No, I, I wanted to be a pilot, but, uh, you know, they just... Uh, you know, they said, you will go here and you will do this. You had and, an assignment, uh, right. I, I think at that point they had so many pilots, they were using them as clerk typists. <laughs> because those who had, who had fought yeah, served well, in war, Europe. The war in Japan now was, uh, had, memory escapes me, had, had either ended or was winding down. And uh, they just didn't need, they had pilots coming out of their wherever. Flight engineer was uh, where I, how I trained, where I trained, and assigned to uh, the 460th Bomb Squadron. So you're on Okinawa, and you're there for some time. I'm there for for over a year plus. Do you have at that point any notion about the bomb that's being worked on the uh, Manhattan Project? I got, I got there. While I was training at stateside, I had no idea about you know. The Manhattan Project. It was so top secret. When I got to Okinawa, the war had just ended. So the bombs had been dropped. And I don't remember. It was um, uh, three weeks later, a month later, two weeks later, or two months later, we, we flew. We, the 460th Bomb Squadron, we flew a, uh, a photo recon mission over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Most people don't know. Uh, that Nagasaki was not the primary target. It was Kokura. Kokura. And there was two separate planes. The Enola Gay flew, flew Hiroshima with an with, with atom bomb, and a plane called Boxcar flew the Nagasaki uh, Kokura with plutonium, uh, plutonium bomb. So there were two separate bombs. Before you go there, I want to come back to Okinawa just for a second. When you're there, you don't know about the Manhattan Project, but you do know that if the war continues, there's likely going to be a full-scale invasion of Japan. And there, uh, the plan was, and we all knew that the plan was to invade Japan, MacArthur in charge, and they were talking about an invasion force of three million. Now, during World War II, totally, our fatalities, American fatalities in World War II, Europe, uh, Pacific were about 400 and some odd thousand. It was estimated that if we invaded Japan, and of course we would not invade alone, you know, our allies would be with us, but they were projecting fatalities or casualties of a million five hundred thousand or 50 percent of the invasion force. And that's what Truman, thank God, in my mind, uh, opted to go uh, drop the bombs. And he had not been briefed as vice president on the Manhattan Project. He, he had not been briefed. As a matter of fact, he had only been vice president for four months, January, February, March, and April. And Roosevelt died in April of 1945, one month before the war ended in, in, in Europe. So Truman had... He was not in the loop at all. They had kept him totally out of the loop. He had been vice president for four months. So when you're on Okinawa and with, you're with your mates and you're talking about what the future may bring and an invasion 
and I, I, I suspect you probably feared that you wouldn't make it out of that invasion. I never, I never thought I'd make it back alive. You know, with the kamikazes, and uh, you know, none of us said, "Hey." Everybody made up their own rumors. Everybody made up their own stories. <laughs> used to, we used to kid, let's start a rumor and see how fast it gets back to us. <laughs> all right. uh, when all of you heard that the bomb had been dropped on Hiroshima, what was the reaction? Didn't believe it. Huh? I guess we, we didn't understand. I didn't understand. I was 18 years old. I really didn't understand the impact of it until months afterwards when we flew the photo recon mission and I saw with my own eyes what I didn't see. I made up my own words. Someone, did, kids used to ask other people, what did you see? And I, finally I came up with these words, my words. I saw a wasteland of nothing. I said, nothing stood. It was just emptiness. It was just vast areas of gravel. Nothing, nothing moved, nothing stood. It was, uh, I said, a wasteland of nothing. You're on that photo recon mission. We went, we Here. went, well, I'm, as a flight engineer, I had no window, and I asked the pilot who was the old man. <laughs> I'm 18, he's probably 24. I said, can I jump in with the bombardier and the nose? War's over, so we, he does not have a Nord, Norden bomb site. So there's room, and I, so. And we went in at a relatively low altitude, I'm guessing five, 6,000 feet, low for a B-29. And, uh, and the B-29 has this glass-enclosed nose, so yeah, you, have, yeah, yeah. you have a great, picture so I here, saw, don't you? you know, what I, I saw it, and uh, the, the interesting, I think it is interesting today, when we got back, one of the gunners, observers in our plane, knew somebody in the photos section, and he got us all copies of the pictures, you know, of what the, you know, what we photographed. So each one had a set of pictures. We were living in this tent. Mournful Manor was the name of our tent. The next day, three of the biggest MPs I ever saw <laughs> came in our tent with pist pistols drawn, and uh, they said, you have photographs of, the of your photo recon mission. Those are top, top secret. We want them, we want them now, or uh, each one of you is going to face a summary court-martial. The irony, in my mind, we, of course, turned the pictures over immediately, is all you have to do today is go to your computer, type in Hiroshima, Hiroshima, type in Nagasaki, and you'll see all of the pictures. <laughs> Nothing is, well, look at what is it, 70 some odd years ago now? But you saw them for real yeah, with we your saw, own eyes. We saw them for real. And as, as a, when I, you know, and I keep coming back to my line, and I saw a wasteland of nothing, just do you gravel. Still it's, nope, nope. I never saw a person walk. I never saw, in our quick run over, never saw people, never saw a car, never saw, never saw anything. You still have that image in your oh, mind's yeah, eye? Yeah, yeah. It'll never go away. No. When the flight returned to base, or even before, did you talk to your crewmates about what you'd witnessed? 
we talked about invagaries. Boy, wasn't that something. But I think everybody's innermost secrets, feelings, remained innermost feelings. I don't remember us talking, you know, philosophically or what have we done. The morality we, of you know, the, yeah. the morality of it all. I, th- I think the, the common judgment was war is immoral. You kill people with we, we, the 20th Air Force, which was on Tinian and in, in the Pacific, kills more people in Japan with firebombs. They were firebombing Japan for weeks, for months, prior to, to the use of the atom-bombs. And they literally killed more people with the firebombs than they did with the atom-bombs. If you kill people, does it matter if it's an atom-bomb or a firebomb or a, a... Look what we did in Dresden, in Germany. We burned, burned the city down. We didn't talk about the morality of it as such. I think we were probably too young, too dumb, too whatever. That came much later. But you knew the war was over. Yeah, the war is over. You know, when we went over, the war was over. No one was shooting at us. <laughs> but, you know, the morality of it, hard, you know, Tru- I think that came, to me, that came to me much later right. in my life. Right, right. As, uh, as I matured and... <laughs> Stopped being a teacher, teenager, started being an adult. And you understand and rationalize that (coughs) that action was taken to save lives. And through the years and living through, as an adult, the nuclear threats of this country and that country. And uh, today, a nuclear, uh, the two bombs, one was called Little Boy. That was the bomb that was in the Enola Gay. And the second bomb was called Fat Man. That was a plutonium bomb. That was in the uh, plane called Boxcar. And they were each about six, 7,000 pounds. Today, a nuclear missile warhead with, with, with a head of maybe 12 inches, 12 inches in circumference, has doubled the power of those bombs. We've come that far. We, the Russians, everybody. Now that there were eight nations. I mean, we were the only nation at that time that had nuclear capabilities. Today there are eight nations. I'm scared. I'm not, not for myself anymore, but for my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids. We all you know, are. I, th- I think the world is, you know, eight, the nuclear, you know, did we unleash something we should not have hard to say but world war ii was world war ii and you had to live it you had to be there be part of it to know what what we were going through well as an 18 year old and you're talking with your age group there after the photo recon mission did you have any discussion then about wow we have just unleashed a nuclear age it's taking us no no we were we were that was beyond our emotional mental purview we i think we were all just happy hey hey the war is over we're going home so you are going home and you make a call yeah to the home front and it's a Uh, collect call we went home very very suddenly one day they said, okay, 460 bomb squad, you know, whatever we were then, the Far Eastern Air Forces, get packed, troop ship is 20 days, whatever it is later, we, I know we landed in Seattle. 
we queued up to make a phone call, and in those days, every phone call in Chicago, maybe all over, they had an exchange. Now, what do I mean by an exchange? Our phone number, where we lived, in Englewood, on the south side, was Englewood and four numbers. Englewood 6923, Englewood, someone else may have one, Hyde Park 3290, Lakeshore, but every part of Chicago had an exchange. Now, I must tell you this. My father and mother did not write, or were not capable of writing the English language, if, if you will. So when I was on Okinawa for the year and a half, or whatever it was, I never got a letter from home. I would write home, but I always felt that if anything happened to them, either one of them, uh, the Red Cross or my brother, somebody in the family would, would, nail, would nail me with some kind of a message. So I, uh, I never went to mail call. You know, friends, yes, didn't have a girlfriend. So we're home. And I called this number, and the operator comes on. I, I drop my dime or quarter, and, and the thing dials zero. I want to make a collect call to this number. Operator says, okay. Rings my dad in his thick Russian accent, answered the phone, hello. And she said, he's got a collect call from me. Will you accept charges? And he screams, you call Collect Okinawa, hang up. And he hung up on me. <laughs> Welcome home. <laughs> Did you try again? No. I, I figured, okay, they know I'm back. And uh, on, a troop, uh, on a troop train, and believe it or not, where do I end up? Fort Sheridan, which is about, what, 10 minutes from here? Right, right. And... Uh, that's where they mustered me out, and I'm uh, now, uh, I think, 18, 19 years old by this time, maybe. We always used to say, we're not old enough to drink, we're not old enough to vote, but we're old enough to die. Because oh, yeah. it was 21 before you could have a drink, mm -hmm. go into a bar, it was mm -hmm. 21 before you could vote. So I, I couldn't go to the neighborhood bar and celebrate and have a drink. When you finally come home, and Ma and Pa are at, at the house, I presume, in Englewood. What was that reunion like? It was emotional. Uh, you know, they uh, hugs, kisses, are you all right? You know, and uh, then it was, okay, let's get on with my life. And my brother was, at this point, married and had moved, moved away. So um, my, my deal was I just wanted to get off and go to college and, and, and start a life. And I'm sure they were very proud of you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think so. In her own way, we were not an intellectual family. We were not an emotional family. My mother, more than my, my father, was a, it was hard to have a relationship with him. And I admit that now. That he was, I suppose, prototypical Russian standoff. Uh, but they were proud, you know. And uh, cousins had all come home, and I may have been the last of the, of the family who had been in service to come home. Did you, when you're talking to your folks, did you tell them about what you'd witnessed? No. Uh, they, uh, it was beyond them. Yeah. It was really beyond them, and all they knew was the war was over. Well, that's the important and, thing. And uh, they still had, my mother still had family in Russia. She had a brother, actually he was a half-brother, who was a colonel in the Russian army. And he went on to be a professor at Leningrad University, according to family history. But uh, 
nothing, you know, how are you, more, more importantly, how am I, mm-hmm. you know, just in, broad, in the broadest terms. Nothing, nothing emotional, nothing specific about what did you do, how did you do it, never occurred. It was beyond their purview of understanding. You have a hero. Who is your hero? His name is Jake Besser. He was an Orthodox Jew from Baltimore who enlisted in the Army Air Corps the day after Pearl Harbor. He was a mechanical engineer, and he wanted to fight. And I picture myself something like him. I guess I wanted to go in, too, after Pearl Harbor, but I was only 14 or 15. I couldn't force, you know, know, when you're 15, you can't pass for 17 or 18. He became a... part of the uh, Manhattan Project, and he was sent to Los Alamos to work with Oppenheimer and the rest of them on the uh, on development of the bombs. He ultimately went with the five, went, was sent with the bombs to the uh, to Tinian, uh, where the Enola Gain boxcar were. With, it was called the 509th Composite Group. It was Paul Tibbetts, and I forgot the pilot's name on boxcar. Sweeney. Yeah, but his job was up through radar to to arm the bombs and follow the track of the bombs. And he is the only man that flew both missions. He flew the Enola Gay and he flew boxcars. So he saw both Hiroshima, although he didn't see, actually see the explosion. He was busy doing whatever he did. He's monitoring radar. Monitoring radar. And he flew... Uh, he flew Nagasaki in boxcar. Following the war, he worked for Westinghouse, I know, uh, for years in their military development, whatever. Why is he your hero? Because he served because of, yes, because on those two of, missions? Of, of, because he served. Because his faith? His faith. I identified with him, you know, and I, I guess, you know, I think being a Jew very much saying, hey, did... Did you do your part? It, it, it becomes so convoluted with the Holocaust, and you know, I, I believe me in service. I, uh, I, I had my share of anti-Semitism. So, but this guy's my hero. In in a sense that he did what he did, day after Pearl Harbor. Patriotism stood stood forth. Let me move you forward to uh, 2013, 10 years ago. You went on your honor flight. That is true. What and, an honor that was. And our mutual friend, Alan Garfield, who's on the board of Honor Flight Chicago, had something to do with that. I think he recruited you to go. Alan's locker at our, we, we belonged to a country club together. Alan's locker happened to be directly next to mine. And we, uh, we played a lot of golf together. Had our share of uh, Dewar's White Label Scotch together. And Alan kept talking about honor flight. And I said, Alan, not, not for me. I said, tell me the details. And he said, well, you have to be at uh, Midway Airport, and I live in Highland Park by then, at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I said, you've got to be out of your mind. I've got to be on the south side of Chicago. It means i got to get up like at 2, 
And who's going to take me there? Certainly not my wife. I said, a cab drive. So anyway, he kept, Alan, I said, Alan, what's, what is your uh, involvement? And he said, to honor my father, who was in World War II. And that's, this is how I honor him. And he uh, pushed wheelchairs, goes on flights. I admire him so much for, and his wife for what they do and their involvement. Because I, I belong to a, uh, a veterans group. Some of them uh, have gone on honor flight. I know what it means. I know the emotional kick that I got. It's, uh, so he won you over and you went. I'll never forget it. It was just, a, it was a, it, it's, it's hard to describe when people walk up to you and just grab your hand and, and say, thank you for serving. Huh? Because I, I've become so cynical about, you know, World War II. Do people remember? Do people, you know, there's, I was told there's only 2% of us left. At one point in my life, not too, some years ago, we, uh, lived in Palm Springs, California during the winter. And I was a uh, docent at the Air Museum. And we wore uniforms, quasi-uniforms, with a badge, and my badge identified me as a, a World War II veteran, WW11. And I'm talking to a group of, whatever, 10 people one day, something about a P-51, which they were asking about, or a P-47. And someone said, can I ask you a personal question? I said, ask away, that's why I'm here. And they said, you look young. Were you really in World War XI? (laughs) And I thought, oh my God. (laughs) I said, is that what it's come down to? Oh no. (laughs) And I did not want to insult this person in front of their friends. And I looked, and I thought, that I looked, and I thought, and I said, no, ma'am. I uh, flew in World War II. I was lucky enough to miss the other nine. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I walk around the club that I belong to. I'm now the oldest member, the only World War II veteran left. There used to be so many of us. You know, and I wear a hat that identifies me. I've got, my wife will tell you, I've got like eight or nine World War II hats of some kind. And the kids, the young people today, they don't know. And I say to myself, do they care? You know, don't they teach history? I don't think they, they know or give a damn. It's a terrible thing to say, but I just... I think they're so involved, the young people of today are so involved in their own lives that they, they forgot, you know. The, well, I know. What do, what do they know about Vietnam? What do they know about Korea? What do they? Well, what, what, I know this could fill a book, but what do you want them to know? If they are inclined to learn, what do you want them to know? I want them to know that there are people, young people, who cared about this country enough to put their lives on the line, that went Vietnam, particularly the great unwashed, ended up going. Everybody else who could dodge it, dodged it by going to college. That was their, all you had to do is go to college, yeah, but then I'm not going to go. How do I feel about them? 
taking my friend Jay, my friend my I think of Jake Besser day after Pearl Harbor he's in I think of myself hey I'm going and if I have to lie my way in I'm going job has to get done you know Vietnam was a poor man's war black man's war you know the line I you know I quoted in a speech I gave I read a book about uh, about Vietnam I didn't know much about it and there was this 13-line quote from a Marine. I call him a dog-faced Marine, a grunt, you know, a Marine rifleman saying it was just 13 words. And it, it, to me, it captured the morality or the no morality of, of war. I hope to go to heaven because I've done my time in hell. And I never forgot those 13 words. And some years ago, not that many, I'm sitting in my office I'm watching television, and, and the news is just horrible. Well, we all know what's going on in the United States today. And it was, there was nuclear threats by this one, by that one. And I thought, oh, my God, here we go again. And I thought of Hiroshima. I thought of that Marine. And I walked over to my desk, and I took a piece of paper, and I said, I hope I go to, and I wrote this in, with apologies for plagiarism, and I said, I hope I go to heaven because I've seen hell. Yeah, you have. Thank you for sharing all this. Thank you. And I hope, uh, Howard, that your message gets through. I'd like to think that, that younger generations do wish to learn, and there have been some who've come to the fore and have decided they want to learn and they're learning a lot through Honor Flight Chicago. Thank you for asking and it's been my pleasure. Thanks. We hope you found today's Honor Thank Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org. Thank you.